When I approach something, I have this kind of approach of of the storytelling, of the words, of how the ways in which we say things actually kind of change or transform the way in which you experience things or the way in which we know things. Welcome to the Lush Life Podcast. I'm your drinking companion, Susan Schwartz, and I bring you the how-to guide for living life one cocktail at a time. Thanks to my mother's love of martinis, the first words I spoke were shaken, not stirred, and I've been obsessed by cocktails ever since. Together, we'll learn from bartenders, brand ambassadors, distillers, and others why certain drinks are popular in certain cultures, how to make the perfect old-fashioned, when to shake and when to stir, and so much more. Hear that sound? It's time to cozy up to the bar and let the fun begin. Have you ever tried a Pisco Sour? Now is the time to start. For five generations, the Caposano family have been at the helm of Pisco Wacar. And after one sip, you can taste the tradition they've passed on. So when you're next at the bar, make sure to ask for Pisco Wacar by name. Thanks to the hard work of our guest today, Pisco Wakar is a whole lot easier to find on the shelves in London than it was even three years ago. Javiera Lorenzina Ritai, brand ambassador for Pisco Wakar, fell in love with Pisco and John Donne at the same time. I don't usually say that in a sentence, that's for sure. Her passion for English poets may have led her to London, but her studies as a sommelier led her to Wakar and she couldn't pass up the chance to work with her favorite Pisco here in Europe. In the first instance, like Pisco is kind of part of the DNA of my country. So I think that when I started, obviously when I started drinking Pisco, I wasn't thinking of Pisco as just Chilean, Chilean or Peruvian or, or whatever. I was just like drinking Pisco. It's just like something that you are used to just finding the supermarkets, coming around, so obviously Pisco was Chilean because it was part of my culture, but it was later on that I began figuring out that there, there was all this conflict between Chile and Peru. And uh, is, it, is it Pisco Chilean? Is it Pisco Peruvian? But in strict terms, yes, obviously, because Pisco is just like so uh, such an important part of our drinking culture, about our kind of parting culture. Like P- Chilean people drink Pisco's Hill and we start drinking since we're very young. That was so. going to be my second question. Was how, how early do you start drinking? So as every teenager started drinking, I don't know really like how old I was, but obviously I wasn't le- like drinking legally, uh, as you can imagine. And yeah, like it, it uh, when I started drinking, we started drinking Piscola. So it's just like very kind of strong built up drinks of Pisco and Coke. And everybody when I was little would be drinking this. But no, I wasn't the kind of one that has been given alcohol when she was four. No, I probably started around 10 or... Uh, but it was yeah. always in the house. So something that your family had around? So, so uh, there wasn't that much booze actually in my family. But in the case of Chile, we used to party in houses. Like that's a very different thing. Uh, if, you con- if you compare the drinking culture here in the UK and in Chile. In Chile, you party a lot in the houses. So normally I would have started drinking pisco in a party, in a house party of a friend. So it's mm-hmm. always kind of in a house environment, like kind of really protected. So... Yeah. All right. So other than drinking, what were you, were you studying? You were a student, I assume. Yeah. Yeah. At that point. Yeah. Yeah. I was at school. 
Yeah, when I started drinking Pisco. Uh, yeah, I was doing a bunch of stuff when I was at school. I've always been kind of a little bit into everything, which is great and it's not that great sometimes. Like I get like overloaded. But at that point, yeah, drinking Pisco, partying, but also playing piano, playing volleyball, doing a thousand stuff. But yeah. Uh, yeah, my drinking Pisco memories come all that way behind. So I've been drinking Pisco. Well, it's, it's the first, it's the, one of the first things that I drank probably. So that's the amazing thing of being here in the UK and being talking about Pisco because it's something that's so natural to me. Like, So when you, so you were a student and then you were going to university, I assume? Uh, so then I went to university and I studied literature. I was very much of this uh, nerd girl that uh, did very well at school, um, had a lot of problems by choosing what to do. And I finally did something that I really loved, which was literature. Uh, so I studied at Universidad Católica and just Hispanic American literature. Uh, really enjoyable. Hispanic-American. Yeah, Hispanic-American. So. so I was a lot into poetry, so kind of studying a lot of contemporary poetics and really experimental weird texts and the way in which the words get material. And yeah, I, I enjoyed it a lot. And obviously it, it, uh, it has determined a lot the way in which I am and the way in which I'm working in the spirits industry as well. I have always, when, when I approach something, I have this kind of approach of... of of the words, of, of, of the storytelling, of the words, of how the ways in which we say things actually kind of change or transform the way in which you experience things or the way in which we know things. So this has yeah, always kind of determined the way in which I uh, also have approached my, my job with Pisco later on. So when did you come to the United Kingdom? So that's a very long story, but basically I studied literature I decided to do a master and at some point, at that point I was loading into poetry and I started doing this thesis on John Donne. I don't know why, well I love, I love Donne's poetry so at some point it was like okay just so love you, this thing. I'm you were just studying write. poetry, you were, I'm sorry, you were studying poetry in the English language as well? So what happened is that I had this amazing teacher at some point that did this module on old stuff because at that point I was doing a lot of contemporary poetry and then I got into early modern early modern poetry Spanish English and so on so I just started yeah I've been always reading English I didn't have an amazing English but I just really enjoyed it a lot so I was using translations using the the English text as well and at some point it was like okay I want to just write about this because these texts are so awesome and uh, I realized then when I started working that I had no available books whatsoever and something like Amazon doesn't, like Amazon is getting into Chile now, but at that point there was nothing. So I realized that it was going to be better to apply for a scholarship for coming here, which I did. I got the funds and yeah, that's the first time I came in here. So that was like five years ago. And how was your English when you came? Oh, it was very bad. Well, it was not that bad, but yeah, it was like I... I've always been struggling with languages. I think that you think that at some point you're going to get quite there, you're going to be bilingual. But no, that actually never happens. But at that moment, I was even worse. So, uh, yeah, I just did it. I, no, normally, I just do things in, in this kind of way, like in a very responsible way, but then thinking of everything I can learn. And, you know, here I am, that kind of little trip just changed everything. But do you think it was easier to understand the English of John Donne? Or the English uh, that we're speaking now, when you started? When I started, everything was about just the poetry and, and, and the enjoyment of the text and, and basically being able to write a thesis 
like a, like kind of a decent piece of work. Obviously, about the the idea that I always had wanted to come here, so uh, and to explore English culture and so on. So obviously, in like as the years have passed, and I eventually ended up doing a PhD. Everything has to do also with understanding the ways in which that old English or the understanding of this old English on, or on the problems that I'm examining in English text have a resonance today or link to problems or to, or, or to things that have to do with English language but with English culture as well. So yeah, it's, uh, it's been interesting because I'm just like a proper outsider in that sense uh, when it comes to English. So when you're, when you're approaching a, a, a different language, everything is strange. So you, 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 you kind, of, kind of question it in a, in a very different way. So yeah, pro, yeah. At that point, I just wanted to write a thesis on John Don. I could do it. I could do some travel. I ended up in a in an amazing institute that's called the Barbuk Institute, uh, that has all these texts on philosophy, arts, uh, rhetoric uh, of uh, classical and then early modern, early modern as well, Renaissance. And I stayed there like for eight months, and then I came back to Chile, but already with the idea of coming back at some point to continue with my with my studies. Um, but then uh, eventually I finished my thesis, I applied for coming here, which because obviously I couldn't come here without a scholarship at all. So in Chile they have this amazing scholarship that's called Becas Chile, which is very difficult to get if you want to do a master, if you want to do a PhD, it's easier. But I had decided that I had to do a master just to get the language, understand how the field was working and so on. So I applied and I had around eight months just of doing nothing. I had just finished my master. I had some time of doing nothing. So I decided uh, to just do something that I had always wanted to do, which was to study to be a sommelier, start the courses to be a som. And that's, well, a little bit before that, I had been writing this blog on wine and literature just on side of doing this thesis about Don Don. It was very funny because I was just writing it as a kind of um, experiment uh, or kind of exercise of writing. It's very short text. They're in Spanish, so it's very difficult for me to show it to friends here. But it's just like very short text that kind of explore or suggest one little problem about booths and, and, and words and literature or or, or I, I was also examining wine labels, things like that. Uh, so at some point I was like, I have this month free. I don't know if I'm going to get my scholarship to go. Why don't I just do this thing that I really love? So I began studying uh, for all those months until I eventually got the scholarship for coming here and I had to decide if to accept it or not because I was already very kind of uh, excited about all this change in my life and all the boost things and I got into the industry in Chile I met these amazing people it was like oh what should I do should I go to the UK it's gonna be difficult it's gonna be it's gonna be again going into the English not knowing anybody um, but then and then in Chile, I had all this kind of new exciting thing going on. So part of my history with the brand, with Walker, has to do with, oh, this opportunity appeared that would enable me to do my PhD, do my English studies, kind of pursue with my activities on literature, but at the same time, carry on with all the sommelier stuff. Okay, wait, wait, wait. Hold on there. Back to the sommelier. Now, how come you always wanted to be a sommelier? I don't really know how that got... I, I, it's, probably because I'm really explorative and at some point, uh, even though, well, in my family they didn't drink that much. My dad was this kind of guy that would drink kind of slightly cheap wine for dinner, but at some point I met some friends, a couple of friends, 
uh, that were a lot into wine and drinking and with which we would down a bottle in a nice conversation and just begin to kind of get the descriptors and and at some point I just I just loved it and I just began doing research and uh, and the writing of the blog also at some point kind of bursted and people from the industry began reading it so I understood that I had to kind of get my knowledge improved if mm-hmm. this makes any sense mm-hmm. so at some point I had the I had the time and I just did it because I knew that I wasn't going to be able to do it in any other time if I got my scholarship for for coming back here now in Chile is wine or should I say it the other way? Is pisco considered a wine, or is it considered a spirit? Pisco considered a spirit in Chile, and actually Chileans drink more pisco than wine, which is an amazing thing. But actually, yeah, the the, the consumption of pisco in Chile is crazy. Like it's two liters per capita. We drink everything. Like pisco is like, uh, yeah, we drink everything that's produced in Chile, and we're also the biggest importers of Peruvian pisco. So basically, yeah, pisco is considered as a spirit, as something different to wine. You would have wine and pisco in different moments, and pisco is more considered to be kind of the party spirit. Uh, so if you're going to party and you're just like going to have a night out, you're going to be drinking pisco. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then, yeah, actually, pisco consumption uh, is bigger than wine in Chile. Which is so did you get involved with Wakar while you were in Chile? While I was in Chile, yeah. I already knew the product when I was starting to be a sommelier, and I loved it. Uh, and it's, it, and it's uh, generally recognized as the best pisco that you can get in Chile. So I was like, yeah, I had already tried it. Uh, I really admired the liquid a lot. I knew it was a family generation distillation pisco and so on. But I got involved with it when I was told that I had my scholarship. So I was finishing with my studies to be a som, and I still didn't know what to do. And when I told um, uh, the director of the School of Sommeliers, his name is Ricardo Grille, that I was leaving, he was like, oh, but you know that in Wacker they're really thinking of having somebody there uh, that can do little jobs. Like at the, at, the, at the very beginning, he just presented something like, oh, you can probably kind of guide a couple of tastings or go to a couple of events and you can be very helpful for them. And I was like, yeah, of course, I really love Wacker. And then he put me in touch with one of the owners and I had an interview on I just came with a brand. Now, were they already in the UK as a brand? They were already in the UK. They weren't too known. At that point, well, there were a couple of big names that knew it. So it was in Artisan for the moment in which uh, Alex and Simone were here. So they got into a menu with a couple of beautiful drinks. And it had its momentum, but it was really fading. Uh, So no, like literally there was nobody here. There was not official kind of importer of Wacker. There was only one guy that was taking care of. His name was Dave. He was taking care of some food in a food business, but at the same time he looked that Wacker was in the wholesalers. But nobody really pushing. The brand wasn't really that known. It was known in France though. So in France, La Maison de Whiskey had taken it and had wider distribution over there at the moment. But no, not really. Uh, there wasn't a lot about Wacker in here when I just arrived, um, and I didn't know obviously. A lot about the spirits industry as well when I arrived. Mm-hmm. So I was like coming here just like. But how many years ago was this? This was three years ago. So only three years. Three, Boy. three and a year half ago. Everything. So much has changed. Yeah, it's very, very impressive. So you, um, you had this, what you thought of a small job with one yeah. car coming. Yeah. Um, when you came back to do the master's and PhD, did you have an idea in mind of what you wanted to study? Yeah, well, when you uh, when I did my when I applied for my master, it was already early modern English literature. Mm-hmm. So after John Don, I just it, like I just got into English. So 
Uh, yeah, uh, so I knew my topics were going to be around that. And then when you apply for a PhD, you need to apply with a project. So that has to be pretty much ready. Uh, so you know exactly what you're going to be doing research on. So what was it? Did you have a, like a name of, you know, a title for your... So I'm doing a thesis about uh, early modern English poetry. So 16th and 17th century poetry. When people ask me, it's like Shakespeare and company, everybody from the age of Shakespeare. Uh, so the poetry that was written in that period uh, and the way in which a little book written by this uh, Greek rhetorician that's called Hermogenes influenced the style of this poetry. And when I'm talking about style, I'm referring of how the way in which you say things change the meaning. So uh, how... Which, ba- yeah, basically, which is your love from what you're telling me beforehand. Yeah, you're yeah. really interested in that. Yeah, yeah. I've been, well, like all my... Tri- like all my... Li- uh, career in literature has been, has involved to think the ways in which we say things mostly in poetry but obviously that's influenced the way in which I uh, in which I approach kind of yeah as I told you before I approach kind of my work with booze and then for doing a thesis like this I had to study a lot of rhetoric which is a word that like now has probably bad connotations so when you're too rhetorical people think that you're kind of saying saying a lot without saying nothing like but in ancient times and the Renaissance, this was really an art of how basically conveying things, being persuasive and getting across with your ideas with, uh, with your ideas to people and basically also kind of project the, the kind of things that you want to project. And in this sense, uh, yeah, uh, this is super fun uh, because also this little work by Hermogenes has all these ideas of how do you th- say things. So, for example, there's the idea of clarity when you say things in a clear way. But then there's the idea of verity, for example. So how do you want to show that you're being very sincere? And how do you have to speak or write if you want to kind of sound spontaneous and sound like really kind of sincere? Uh, there's the beautiful style. There's the smooth style. There's the forceful style. There's a bunch of very amazing categories that I, was, that I am examining now in English poetry, but it also can be examined in kind of other areas. So... Yeah, I'm having fun, uh, as you can see. <laughs> but this is really fun, yeah. Now, yeah. I'm assuming you take all of that and use it to describe or to teach what Pisco is, number one, and what Wakar Pisco is, number two, to people who might not know. Yeah, yeah, well, I think that, yeah, I don't know if I'm very good at, like, I study rhetoric. That doesn't mean that I'm actually too good at rhetoric, but... Uh, oh, it has to have come through. I can tell it does. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully. Uh, I think I think that uh, it has to do uh, with the with the written text. So when I have to kind of uh, describe or do written text about Wacker, it really comes across. But then when it comes to do kind of some oral teaching, yeah, for example, the idea of verity, the idea of force, can you actually, how do you actually show that you're being passionate to somebody and then you actually make it come across? But also the idea of clarity. So basically when you want to teach somebody some something, you really need to convey it in a clear way so it's kind of appealing for everybody. And uh, basically you can mix all of this. Uh, it's, re- it's really cool. All right. But- so let, let's try and be clear about Peruvian versus Chilean Pisco for okay. anyone who might not know the difference. So uh, there's been... Uh, this big controversy always about where is Pisco from. So Pisco has been said as being from Peru and as being from Chile. Um, 
everybody asks me my, the opinion because bartenders and consumers love the controversy. It's just like, oh, you're from Chile, so you're going to say that uh, Pisco is from Chile, it's not from Peru, and so on. What I normally say is that Pisco is this brandy that is binational, basically, because like in terms of history, Pisco began to be produced both in Chile and in Peru from 16th century after the Spanish conquered all these territories and brought the vines. So at the moment in which Pisco began to be produced, actually, Chile and Peru didn't exist in national categories at all. Obviously, what is, what, which is, what is quite cool is that uh, the legislation in Chile and Peru for doing Pisco is actually different. So Chilean Pisco and Peruvian Pisco are going to be different anyway. And that makes that the category is actually super varied and, and, and exciting to approach. If you have a Pisco sour with a Peruvian Pisco or if you have a Pisco sour with a Chilean Pisco, they're going to be different things. Which one is the biggest difference? Uh, and here I might get a little bit technical, but I'm gonna ex- I'm gonna try to yeah. explain it clearly. So basically, when you um, the the law for Peru is really restrictive and a little bit more strict, just because uh, they did this law afterwards and they did it for avoiding that pisco was being faked because Peru is from a little bit more in the north. So they were adding a lot of sugar cane uh, to their brand, to, to this mm-hmm. kind of uh, grape spirit. So basically they said, okay, we're gonna, we want to do something very strict. And they said, you can do, for doing Pisco, you need to have this wine. You can do only one distillation in pot stills and you can't add anything else. Yeah. So you can't add any water uh, and you can't age in oak barrels at all. It needs to be a clean spirit that is distilled what we call to proof. Right. Whereas in the case of Chilean Pisco, uh, it's very interesting because actually Chilean Pisco is the third oldest appellation of origin worldwide. So you have Cognac, Armagnac, and then Chilean Pisco in 1931. And the, the reasons for creating the appellation of origin were different. So it was actually after the Great Depression um, in that was really that that was really terrible for Chile. This was a big crisis. So the creation of the appellation of origin was to protect the little producers. And then where our uh, appellation was way more flexible. So even though we need to do distillation in pot stills, in batches, we can do it more than once, for example. We don't have to do only one distillation. And then we can add water after distillation. And then we can also age. So we have aged pisco that looks like golden yellow as well. So in terms of tasting a Peruvian pisco and a Chilean pisco, what's going to be the difference? A Peruvian pisco, as they have to just reach the 40 ABV through one distillation. They have to add more tails. They can't get just with the heart of the spirit. So it's going to be, Peruvian Pisco is going to be more exuberant. There's going to be lots going on, like a lot of flowers, but also a lot of earth, a lot of sometimes like rubber. It's going to be a little bit more grassy. It's going to be a little bit more rustic. It's going to have more a kick to it. Um, Peruvian Pisco is going to be probably more similar to a grappa, whereas a Chilean Pisco can get only small portions of heart and then blend with water. So Chilean Pisco is going to be normally smoother, more elegant, more floral and fruity. It's going to be more in the floral, fruity profile, like probably like a white Armagnac or an Eau de Vie. Uh-huh. So it's going to be way more probably easy to drink, like smoother and easy to drink. So you have the Peruvian Pisco that's more rustic, that's a little bit more green earthy and that has more kick to it. It's a little bit more aggressive, whereas Chilean Pisco, if you have a good one, it's going to be just like beautifully floral and fruity. And, and then you have... Uh, these differences between Chile and Peru that are super valuable. And in that sense, I really think that it's kind of, it's not a great idea to, from, from Chilean and Peruvian side to be fighting against each other. What we need to show to the world is that Pisco is actually this white category that has this amazing potential, that is amazing to be consumed on its own 
or in cocktails and that consumers would love it. And that it actually has to stand against other white categories such as, you know, vodka or gin or tequila or whatever. So, yeah, I'm like when it comes to Pisco, I'm just like into the Latin American flag. Uh, <laughs> I say that Pisco is Chilean and Peruvian. Obviously, uh, people can make their own mind, but I think that is really interesting or, or I think it's really necessary that a bar has both, has a Chilean Pisco and has a Peruvian Pisco. Now, let's talk about Wacar. And you said it's five generations. Yeah. So they've been doing it for a long time. Yeah, yeah. It's well. It's uh, five generations is the oldest one that we have been able to uh, to actually chase, but it could be actually even more. So they have been. Uh, they are based in this little distillery that is called in this little village that's called Tulawen, and this little village is located in the south of the Atacama Desert. And over there, this family has been doing distillation for six generations and been participating on the very important events on the pisco industry. So, for example, the master distiller, Jaime, great-great-great-grandfather, was the first one battling Pisco in Chile. And then you have his son, who was the president of one of the biggest cooperatives that was created in the 30s. So all of them were really pioneers in the uh, in the production of Pisco. And then in strict terms, um, Wacker is a, as a brand is quite new. So it was created in 2010, but basically benefits from the recipe that Jaime, the master distiller, and his dad created with all the knowledge that they've had from the family backwards. Yeah. Why did they decide to create the brand? So basically, uh, in the 20th century, if you look to Chilean industry, what you have mainly is two big cooperatives that were uniting all the new producers that were called Capel and Control. And at some point, Jaime, the master distiller, was uh, working for one of these cooperatives, so for Capel. And he meets with two friends uh, that are also in the wine and spirits industry. And they say, why don't we get just independent and do the best liquid that we can do within the Chilean appellation? And Wacker is a lot about the Chilean Pisco, so it goes a lot in that direction. And they just got independent. And it's actually the first Chilean independent brand. Uh, and it inaugurated a trend that now is just super big. So now you have all, every time I come back to Chile, there's all these very nice new independent brands. But Wacker was actually the first one that showed that an independent brand could produce a liquid of an amazing quality. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's this little kind of crazy dream uh, by little producers. And still the team is really, uh, is really little. It's like a family, which is one of the reasons why I like working for Wacker as well. Uh, it, it, uh, it like the things about the people and the ethos is about the people. So, uh, and and the excellence of the product has to do with the small scale in in every sense. So yeah. Um, so, do you think? Now this is probably you're going to answer that it's both. But um, are there special ways to drink it? You know, should you drink wakar? at a different time, by itself, in a cocktail, you know, talk me through the different ways that one should enjoy it. Yeah. So basically, uh, one of the first things about Wacker is that it's impressively enjoy enjoyable on its own. So I myself, I have always a bottle in the fridge and you can just sip it and it's incre like, it's incredible. It's so tasty. You're going to, you're going to figure out later if you try it, but it's just like so floral and fruity and fresh and you can just drink it on its own, like with a nice ceviche or... Just like you can have it as a aperitif for after dinner. But what's amazing about Wacker uh, is that it's this liquid that is really clean and pure and tasty. So it's 
really versatile to working with cocktails, but at the same time doesn't overpower any other ingredient that you may have. So basically, if you do a pisco sour with it, I really recommend it. It's amazing. It's going to be just very floral and light and fruity. But also the good thing about Wacker, and that's what I'm trying to push here in the UK, is showing that it's really versatile to working with any other kind of cocktail. So uh, you could do, well, now we're just having these amazing seminars with one, with a bartender that won the competition last year in Oslo. And he was literally showing that with Wacker, you can do anything. You can do an old fashioned, you can do a Wacker Negroni, you can do, like, literally, you can twist any classic that you want or go for different uh, different ideas and everything's going to work. So, yeah, like, the question, obviously, the answer was going to be both. So you can enjoy it on its own. But then in, in terms of cocktails, it's really, it brings something into a drink because it's really intense liquid. But at the same time, it's really versatile. You can work in very different directions. So Now, you mentioned a competition. What was the competition for? Oh, we're doing, like, we've been doing since last year cocktail competitions, uh, cocktail competitions for Wacker, just because I think that, well, as the ethos of the company is just like working with the people, what I've been trying to do here, uh, just myself in the UK, you know, is to engage with bartenders. And then people know Pisco, but they know just Pisco Sour or, or, or Pisco Punch, and then the knowledge stops. So a cocktail competition is really good because it encourages the bartenders to educate themselves and then to just play around, you know, to just taste Wacker and see where can they end up or what can they actually create. I also pushed a lot so the winner could go to Chile because it's so like one of the difficult things about talking about Pisco is that Chile is so far. So it's me like the, the lead Chilean here, but it's very different when you actually go to Chile, get immersed in the culture. So we've done that for two years and it's so cool. It's absolutely amazing to see all these amazing bartenders trying to pronounce Tula Wen and talking about Jaime Camposano and, and Pisco and the six generations and literally giving all this knowledge about the category that I love and, and that I really believe in. So, so before we go try it, um, everything that you're telling me about the spirit um, seems to be like Hermogenes, you know, ideas on style. There's clarity, there's gravity. I mean, it seems like you're talking about beauty, brilliance. It seems like you're actually studying Wakar. <laughs> Don't you think so? Well, there's a lot of, there's a lot of crossing overs. Yeah, yeah. It, it, like I hadn't thought it in that way, but actually if you think about Wakar, you can think about clarity, you can think about purity, of course, uh, definitely. Like if, if, if I, there's a way in which I describe Wakar, it's just, just like absolutely beautiful and clean. Uh, beauty, as I already said, but then you have all the in the palette, you have all the complexity and all the flavors going on. So you have abundance as well. You have force in the sense that Wacker is actually really intense. Like when you actually open a bottle, like, well, you know, I, I'm working with stock all the time. And sometimes I've had this bottle open for a long time and very far and it's open and the aroma still comes. So it has all this intensity, uh, even though it's pure and it's delicate. So yeah, like actually uh, we could... We could do a little bit of an analogy there, yeah. Maybe Hermogenes was actually drinking Pisco I while really writing the I could really imagine that style. because it's a very crazy book and very, very weirdly written. Like this guy was writing about rhetoric, but it's, it's, the book is very complicatedly written. Like it's very weird, but yeah, probably it's because he was drinking water. Yeah, it exactly. would make completely sense. Yeah. So let's see if I can write a book is good while I have a sip. Should we go try some? Yeah. Definitely, yeah. I can't thank Javier enough for being on the show and leaving me with not only Pisco Wakar to sip, 
but also their aged Heron. Please stay with us until right at the end of the episode to hear what they're up to for London Cocktail Week, which is going on right now. But first, it's time for our Cocktail of the Week. After all this talk of Pisco Sours, we had to have it as our Cocktail of the Week. In a shaker with five large ice cubes, not crushed ice. Add in three parts of Pisco Wakar. Then add in one part of fresh lime juice, followed by one part gum syrup. Then add one egg white last. Shake vigorously for 10 to 15 seconds, and then strain into a cocktail glass. Garnish it with one drop of Angostura bitters and a dried lime or lemon on top. You'll find this recipe plus the recipe for the competition-winning cocktail Slavomir created for Pisco Wakar, as well as all the cocktails of the week on alushlifemanual.com, where you'll also find all the ingredients in our shop. Make sure it's Pisco Wakar you're drinking in all your Pisco cocktails, or while sipping it neat after supper you'll taste why it's the number one Pisco in Chile. If you're heading to London Cocktail Week, look for their stand in the Cocktail Village in Shoreditch. Here's what they have planned. Yeah, so it's a bar east, uh, very close to Bethnal Green Station, uh, that's called Resident of Paradise Row. And the bartender is called James Drummond, and he did this cocktail with Pisco and pineapple. So he's basically adding pineapple in every possible way and using the whole pineapple to make this kind of beautiful, bright, easy-to-drink cocktail. Uh, So the cocktail is lovely. You really have to go and taste it. But we'll also be at the village uh, with a lot of nice Chilean Pisco drinks. So if you want to find me there, uh, I'm going to be there. Next time, we'll be transported from the hallowed halls of the University of Edinburgh Law School up to the banks of the Ithan River in Aberdeenshire and then back down south to London to meet one of the lead brewers at London's historic Truman's Brewery. Until next time, bottoms up. Thanks for listening to the Lush Life Podcast, the sister of A Lush Life Manual. For more information and links to everything you heard, plus a bit more, please visit alushlifemanual.com. Always remember the wise words of Oscar Wilde, all things in moderation, including moderation. And always drink responsibly. Okay, I said that last part. Theme music is by Stephen Shapiro and used with permission. Lush Life is produced by Evo Terra, and I'm your hostess, Susan Schwartz. I'll see you at the bar. <laughs> <laughs>